Amen. Why don't we stand this morning? I want to just read a text of scripture here, a few verses, and then just lead in prayer. And I'm thinking of uh, a text that Jesus himself quoted from the prophet Isaiah in Luke chapter 4. But I'm going to read from Isaiah chapter 61. He said, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for captives, release from prison for the prisoners, a darkness from the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called the oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Doesn't that sound beautiful? That's what God wants to do. That's the spirit of God that wants to be released into our lives. And I want to pray this morning, Father, for those who are walking through a season of darkness, a season of despair, a season of... uh, maybe depression. Uh, We've been praying this morning, Lord, that you were going to set captives free. Lord, that you're going to replace uh, that that sense of the the rune and ashes of our lives for the oil of beauty, a garment of praise, Lord. I ask today that the spirit of the living God would be released in every hearer's heart, Father, that they would experience life overcoming death, that they would experience hope uh, dispelling uh, despair and hopelessness, Father. I pray today, Lord, that you would grant beauty instead of ashes. I thank you for that, Lord. You are the living God. You are for life over death. You are for victory over defeat. And I pray today that we would experience your glorious presence today and that we would hear your amazing voice speaking into our innermost being in Jesus' mighty name. And God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Well, we're going to turn back to uh, the book of Jeremiah. I've been doing a series of messages. And uh, I, I don't know about you, but this has probably been the most uh, theological book that I've ever looked at. I don't. Maybe that's just where I'm camped in my life right now. But how many realize that as we journey through the Christian life, there come moments when God seems distant? You ever had those moments in life where God seemed a trillion miles away? And, and maybe the task at hand, maybe what God's calling you to do seems overwhelming. Maybe you feel that way today. Maybe you feel like, you know, it's difficult putting one foot in front of the other. Well, it could be that things that you desire or hope for are not transpiring. How many of you ever had uh, things that you've been praying about? It just seems like it's on delay. Anybody have that experience? You know, I want to just encourage you. Listen, you know, I, I've prayed many times for years, and then all of a sudden things happen. And it's so beautiful when God does it. His timing is impeccable, believe me. And uh, we've been praying the last little while for my nephew's wife to receive a kidney. And she's, somebody walked in. This is so unusual. And said, I want to donate a kidney. The young woman walked in and said, I want to give it as an open donor. And uh, so my nephew's uh, wife is going to receive that kidney. And they're going to do the transplant this week. It's just so beautiful how God can do the most difficult and the most amazing things. And my nephew was so overwhelmed. He said, this is so rare. 
for this to ever happen. You know, usually people donate a kidney because they know the person. This was somebody that said they felt they needed to do this. They're giving the gift of life. How many realize that Jesus himself had a Gethsemane experience? And now we're of deep darkness. Some, some people call this the darkness of the soul, the conflict between what he knew he needed to do and the difficulty in doing it. Have you ever had those moments in life where you've been asked to do something that was so difficult, but you know you needed to do it, but it was so hard, and it was colliding. I, I, I write down, it collided and created a conflict within his soul. It was just within him, that agony, that he would be estranged from his father, that he had always been in unity and union with and communion with him and now would be estranged because he would become not just a sin offering. He was that, but he would become sin who had never known sin. He would take on the sin, every human being sin for all eternity upon himself. I can't imagine. The abhorrence of being separated, the darkness that assaulted his soul, brought such deep anguish to Jesus. You read it in Matthew's gospel where it said, and he prayed as it were, and it was great uh, beads of blood breaking from his corpuscles in his, in his mind, you know, like in his head. I mean, he was, this was an intensity that I've never known in my life. Most of us have never known this kind of emotional, spiritual, and mental intensity. Jesus agonized in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I've entitled the sermon, The Hour of Anguish, because, you know, as you and I walk with God, there may come moments in our life. I would say as you journey with God, there will come such a moment, maybe not that intense, but a moment where we walk through this hour where we feel it's so difficult. Actually, Roland Harris relates the intensity of anguish that Jeremiah was experiencing, all of the hostility. Remember some of the things, I'll just remind us, maybe this is the first time you've heard this, uh, anything to do with this book, but God had asked Jeremiah not to get married as a sign that, you know, they would be, you know, the, the land would be taken, they, they would be brought into exile. There would be no marriages in the land after a certain point, and so God told Jeremiah not to get married, to be assigned to the people. How difficult was that not to have a family, not to go to funerals, not to go to weddings. And, and everything he said, people didn't want to hear. And the hostility that was hurled against him and, and the threats on his life, this was not an easy life to live. And so Jeremiah in chapter 20, as we're going to look at, was going through a tremendous time of agony. This is a powerful poetic section which contains unusual psychological insights, not merely in relation to Jeremiah himself, but also for canonical prophecy as a whole because of the self-disclosure of a profound emotional conflict. We're seeing inside the soul of a man. We're seeing inside the soul of a very godly man. We're seeing inside the soul of a man who's conflicted because what God's asking him to do is so difficult, and yet he has to do it. And yet there's a part of him that says, I, I, I don't want to do it anymore. The price is so costly. He goes on to say, Jeremiah's sensitive nature appears in his reaction to the sarcasm and ridicule which his message was received. You know, one of the expectations of a prophet is that what they say is going to happen shortly. And yet, in Jeremiah's case, God was delaying acting because God was showing long-suffering so that his people would repent. And so when you don't have your words becoming fulfilled, people began to believe that you're not truly speaking on God's behalf. In other words, Jeremiah at times was perceived by some to be a false prophet. 
And how difficult was that for Jeremiah? Because he was hearing from God and he was speaking God's message. And there were many people saying the very opposite of him. And of course, what they were saying wasn't happening either, but that, that was neither here nor there. But for Jeremiah, this was difficult. For a person who cared about his people, Jeremiah was often heartbroken regarding their rebellion, and he wept over their spiritual condition. Actually, he's been called the weeping prophet because of his intense intercession for God's mercy upon his people. And yet there was also a great emotional and spiritual toil that was going on inside of his soul because he was sensitive. He endured sarcasm, ridicule. His ministry, for the most part, was not received. At times, he experienced hostility and physical abuse. His life was threatened and endangered, even though God promised to protect him from death. That did not mean that Jeremiah was not suffering terrible things. We read last week where he was uh, beaten and put in stocks. We learn from the episode the challenges and difficulties. What we're about to learn is some of the challenges and difficulties of obediently following God's directives. It's not always easy. You know, sometimes we make it seem like it's an easy task to follow God, but all of us, if you've walked with God for a long time, know there's some very challenging moments. You know, Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me. That's not, that's not speaking of an easy thing to do. Serving others is often painful, and I think all of us have experienced that to varying degrees. Uh, and people you know, are often impossible in their expectations and demands. You know, just be a service person. You know, you work in a restaurant or you work, uh, you know, as a cashier. You work at different places and people come to you and they're very demanding and the expectations and they can be rude. How many know what I'm talking about? People can be nasty at times, right? It's all about where they're coming from. They don't understand the person that they're relating to and maybe they have no control over what's happening. They're just you know, trying to do their job and so they're experiencing these things and some of you have experienced that. Um, and then for a while, Jeremiah here wants to quit. He just says, I had it, I can't do it anymore. I'm, I'm gonna be silent. I'm, I'm tired of you know, getting this huge pushback when I, when I share, all I get is hostility. And, but yet there was another emotion inside of him that could not keep the passion of sharing the message of warning that he knew needed to be heard, otherwise these people would perish. And so how many know there's, there's a conflict going on within his own soul? And that's what we're gonna see here as we look at this chapter 20 and read some of the things he's walking through. And all of this, he's expressing his deepest angst or his anguish before God. It's probably, the, this is it, folks. This is the last time we're gonna get Jeremiah, you know, doing his little communication of where he's at emotionally. You're not gonna see this anymore. I don't know if it's because uh, he finally just, you know, put his head to the plow, hands to the plow and just went for it. I don't know if he just decided, you know what, I, I'm embracing the task no matter what the price and I'm just gonna do it. We don't know because after this we don't hear anything from him. This is the last moment where we're gonna get inside of the mind and heart of this prophet. And I wanna take a look at the three emotional states or moods that he expresses to God. And I think when we hear these things, we're gonna identify very quickly with him because I think we've all experienced that in our lives, these states of mind, 
these emotional moods, these, these uh, high swings. You know, I, I suppose if, if, if you were a psychiatrist, you might even diagnose uh, Jeremiah here as, as, as bipolar. I mean, you're going to hear a, a moment of, uh, of deep elation. You know, he's almost manic. He's elated. And then the next minute, he's despairing, and, and he doesn't even want to live. How many of you go, those are high swings. This is going to be a high-swinging uh, expression of where his heart is at. I mean, he's laying his soul bare before God, and you and I are getting a glimpse into the soul of this prophet. And he begins with his complaint before God. And I, I would say, where is the safest place in the world to bring our pain, our disappointment, our frustration, and our complaints? Bring them to God. That's the safest place. You know, God can handle it. I mean, no, God can handle it. Actually, we're going to find out Jeremiah's angry at God. He's just, you know, he's just really upset, as we're going to find out. I don't think there's, there's no one greater to bring these challenges of life to than God. He alone can resolve them, number one. Number two, he can speak into our lives. He can redirect us. He can speak hope into our situation. Uh, one of the great temptations is that we want to bemoan our lot in life to other people. We want human sympathy, but usually that gets us into trouble. Because usually what we start doing is rather than complain about God to God, we start complaining about God to people. How many know that'll get you into big time trouble? You know, that'll always get you into trouble. Just warn you right now. Here we see his deepest hurt and he directs it at God. He's angry. The language you're gonna hear is intense and I'm gonna tell you right now, if I had a little sign, I'm gonna say, this is graphic material. This is gonna shock you. I guarantee you, you're gonna be shocked. You think that the Bible's tame. This is not a tame book. This is not a tame person. This is, this is wild expressions. Are you ready for it? How many are bracing themselves right now? Hang on to your pew. I mean, you're gonna get shocked a little bit at what Jeremiah says to God. Let's begin. He starts out, he says, you deceived me, Lord, and I was deceived. You overpowered me and prevailed, and I am ridiculed all day long, and everyone mocks me. You go, that doesn't sound too bad. Well, let me start unpacking some, some stuff for you here. This is a translation of the English language. Tremper Longman says the verb translated deceive could alternately be translated persuaded and even seduced or lured. But in any case, the charge against God is quite negative. That the proper translation is either deceived or seduced or lured rather than persuaded is strengthened by the second colon, rather the second part where he accuses God of violence. You've overpowered me and prevailed. In other words, the Hebrew word there is interesting. In other words, God is seizing him. He's got a hold of him. And actually that word in the Hebrew is translated in the book of Genesis in one of the verses where someone rapes somebody. Are you getting the idea that Jeremiah feels violated? This is a strong word. How I many are now getting, well, this is graphic, Pastor. Jeremiah's pretty upset. He, he's upset with God. He feels like, you know, God, you, you are taking advantage of me. That's what he's telling God. Anybody get a sense Jeremiah's got some emotional issue going on here? Anybody get that feeling? I want you to feel it because that's what's happening here. Uh, we need to be reminded of something, though. Right at the very beginning, God did tell, you know, God didn't deceive Jeremiah. God said, you know, I called you from your mother's womb to be a prophet. And then he, he goes on and says this in chapter four. The word of the Lord came to me saying, this is Jeremiah saying it, chapter one. Remember, 
How many know when we're hurting, we say a lot of things we probably shouldn't say? But let's go back to chapter one. This is the call. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. What is God saying here? I had a purpose for your life, Jeremiah. Does everybody think that Jeremiah even has an option now? See, I think that's part of the thing. Jeremiah goes, hey, I didn't have a choice. This is my job. You, you picked me right off the bat. And, 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 and then God says this in verse 10. See, today I appoint you over nations. He's not going to just speak to, to the Judeans. That's where he begins his ministry. But you know, as we keep going through the book, Jeremiah starts prophesying over all the nations because God is over all the nations. And he says, I'm going to appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow. In other words, you're going to bring a very devastating message to these nations of my judgment. That's what God is saying. But then later on, he says, to build and to plant. How many catch the last part? So what I'm going to say to you is we've been listening to the first part here. And it's been pretty intense, right? I've been reading on ahead. Anybody else reading on ahead? Actually, he gets to this part where God starts promising some good things. So hang on, guys. Don't just say, well, okay, this is all negative. No, no, there's more to it than that. There's some good stuff coming up in this book. Really good stuff. Because, see, the last part is to build and to plant. How many like Jeremiah 29, 11? How many like that verse? Everybody know what that verse is? That's the most popular verse right now in the Bible. How many know that? I know the plans I have for you, saith the Lord. Plans to what? To prosper and bless you and give you a future and a hope. Oh, we all love that verse. That's all over our plaques, right? Yeah, that's in Jeremiah. Oh, see, to build and to plant. God has some beautiful promises up ahead. What is Jeremiah complaining about? Well, he's saying that the message is difficult to convey because the message, it's a message people don't want to hear. How many know when you've been asked this how many would hate the job of having to go tell somebody something you know they don't want to hear? And I think that happens all the time. A doctor has to go to a family and say things to a family what that family doesn't want to hear. How many go, oh, that's a tough message to deliver, isn't it? Or how about if you're in the military and you have to go to a family and to tell them that their son or daughter has perished in action? That would be a tough message to deliver. I mean, there are people today having to deliver tough messages. That's true. And Jeremiah is delivering a tough message. I mean, it's, it's a good message. He's basically saying, hey, guys, listen, it's real simple. If you do what God wants to do and repent and turn to God, you're going to be blessed. But if you keep hardening your heart and turning away from God and continuing in your own way, he's going to judge you. And people didn't want to change and they didn't want to repent. So Jeremiah kept telling them, God's going to take you into exile. God's going to destroy you. God's going to judge you. God's going to do this to you. And they didn't want to hear that message. That was the difficult part. And Jeremiah was tired of saying it. He felt isolated. He felt rejected. He felt reproach. You know, he felt the hostility. Verse 8, he says, whenever I speak, I cry out and proclaim violence and destruction. He says, that's what I seem to be telling these guys, left, right, and center. You're in violation of the covenant. Violence and destruction. So the word of the Lord has brought me insult and reproach all day long. He says, I'm telling them what you're telling me to say, but all I'm getting back is a lot of pushback, and I don't enjoy it. Anybody relate to that? How many know the temptation is, hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna soften the tone here. I'm, I, I'm gonna say something that's really hopeful, and, but God says, no, no, you can't say that right now. That's not what these guys are at. That's not what they need. There is a time when people need to hear that message, but that's not the moment they were in. You have to kind of discern what moment are you in. 
But if Jeremiah sees, he says, well, I'm tired of talking. I'll just shut up, right? I'm quitting. I'm handing in my resignation, God. I'm no longer a prophet. I'm not gonna say a word to this nation. Forget it. Nobody likes me anyways. They don't wanna hear what I have to say. But if I say I will not mention his word or speak any more in his name, his word is in my heart like a fire, a fire shut in my bones. I'm weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. What's he saying? He's saying it's awful. I can't live with myself, but I know what's about to happen. If I keep quiet, it's not gonna change anything. God's gonna judge an apostate nation. I need to warn people. Hey, if you knew somebody was perishing in a house and you could hear them, you know, and, and you could see the house is on fire and they're just you know, twiddling on the second floor and you could see the first floor going, you'd be screaming your lungs out to get out of the house. And he says, I'm tired, they're not listening to me anyways, I just will keep my mouth shut. But then he says, I can't do it, I'm looking at the fire, it just keeps coming bigger and bigger. I've gotta say something to those idiots. Whoops, I shouldn't have said that word, right? I got to say something to the guys on the second floor, right? Jump, get out of there. Your life is in danger. Do something. He can't contain himself. There's a spiritual pressure in his calling and in the knowledge that lies within his soul. And yet, as soon as he speaks, the whisper starts surrounding him and haunting him. What's even more painful than what is coming from his very friends, the people that should be supportive, he has this deep sense of betrayal by God and those closest to him. First of all, God's not acting on anything he says, number one. And number two, listen to what the people are saying around him. I hear many whisperings, terror on every side. Now remember a little earlier in the chapter there, he told, God told him to tell the, the priest who had beat him up, you're a terror on every side. Now the, everybody in town is saying, yeah, he's a terror all right. He, they're all laying it back to Jeremiah. That's his new name now. You're the terror, Jeremiah. Terror on every side. Denounce him. Let's denounce him. All my friends are waiting for me to slip and say, perhaps he will be deceived. Then we will prevail over him and take our revenge on him. They're just saying, we're just waiting for you, Jeremiah, to mess up, and then we're going to get you. Now, how many feel a little pressure to be living under that? You can appreciate why he's going through this thing. Hmm. Robert Davison says something very fascinating. I like it. He says, such self-doubt must have been in Jeremiah, as it was so intense that shaken by opposition and indifference, obsessed by the apparent failure of his ministry, he decided to call it a day. You know, a lot of people quit. I'll be honest, it's too hard. This is difficult. I, I don't want to do this anymore. I will not mention him, speaking of the Lord, or speak any more in his name, only to discover that he could not. The choice was grim, to continue along the prophetic pathway, facing terror on every side and self-doubt, or to leave that pathway and stumble into the jungle of spiritual torment. To give up was not the way to peace. To go on was difficult, but not to go on was impossible. The God who had laid his hand upon him would not let him go. You ever feel trapped? Anybody ever had that experience in life? You go, I want to get out, but I can't get out. I'm stuck, right? Anybody have those moments in your life where you felt trapped? How many ever felt trapped? Yeah, this is what he feels. He feels trapped. He feels like, you know, if I quit doing this, I'll be disobeying God. But boy, this is really difficult. I don't want to do this anymore. I'm stuck. I just, I feel caught. This is where Jeremiah is. He feels there's no safe place. 
the message that he had related to Pasher is now being a taunt against him. Jeremiah is a man of deep faith. His confidence is firmly in God. I like what Tremper Longman relates. He says, this complaint records the prophet's reaction to his circumstances. Using the lament form, familiar at least in general structure and tone to what we often in the Psalms, or often are used in the Psalms of disorientation. If you've ever read the Psalms, you have these laments, and they're very disorienting. A lot of times the psalmist is just beside himself, screaming out in pain, and then all of a sudden, you know, he shifts. And we're going to see that in a moment. Jeremiah records his anger toward God and those who are persecuting him. However, also like the lament psalms found in the Psalter, which is the book of Psalms, Jeremiah registers his confidence in God as his protector. How many of you have ever read these psalms and all of a sudden, you know, it's, it's kind of negative. You're reading down the last verse says, yet will I trust in God. Okay, wow, oh, that's, that's good news. I mean, he finally gets to that place. So he's laying, he's, he's spewing out his pain and hurt and anger and frustration. And then he gets past all of that and he says, yet will I trust him. Like Job, you know, though you slay me, yet will I trust you. Isn't that an amazing, that's, that's kind of the same format. You know, you get that sense of it. So here, Jeremiah seems to be of two minds. And isn't that often the case in our darkest hours? We know God is real. We know his word is true. And yet the challenges before seem unrelenting and overpowering. While despairing, we're also affirming our confidence in God. Have you ever listened to someone talk? You know, I've, I've been around people for a little while. I've been a pastor for four decades. I can hear out of their mouths one minute. They're just all their complaints and frustrations. And the next minute I hear these great declarations of faith. Yeah, but I believe in God. I know God is good. So, so they're, on the one side, they're telling me how bad it is. And on the other side, how good God is. And you, you, you get this, this, this tension going on inside. Now, does anybody relate to what Jeremiah is experiencing? How many are now connecting with this guy? Anybody relate to where he's at? It's a lot of difficulty. Well, let's move on to his second emotional state or mood, his confidence in God. It seems we find this mood swing, if we can say it that way. He knows God's for him, even though he feels forsaken and abandoned. So on the, I, I, I write it this way. The conflict is between his theology and his emotions, or his theology and his circumstances. How many know you can read the Bible and say, yeah, God is great. He's every, nothing is too hard for God. Yet God, why am I stuck in this pit and you're not talking to me? Why are you making this glorious promise, but I'm experiencing the exact opposite? Anybody relate to that? You see, that's what Jeremiah is going through. So he's now going to make this great confession. This, uh, we, we, we may lose a sense of the intensity of Jeremiah's situation because of the cultural mores of the society he lived in. He lived in a shame-honor culture, and he was being dishonored. For us, we probably just brush it off and go, oh, that's their problem. But he couldn't do that because this was the culture he grew up in. This is all he knew, and he knew that he was being dishonored and shamed, and this was a blight against his soul. While Jeremiah seems in the eyes of his contemporaries and possibly at times with his own soul to be disgraced, shamed, and dishonored, the reality is that God will ultimately vindicate him and disgrace his opponents. If you get read those Psalms, you know, those, like, you know, God, you know those bad guys that are trying to do this stuff to me? Could you, just, could you disgrace them? <laughs> 
could you shame those guys because they're throwing a lot of junk on me and I feel like I'm living in shame, but they're the guys that are really the culprits, right? He knows he's called by God. He knows he's heard God's voice. He knows he's conveying God's message to the nation and ultimately to the nations as we're gonna see later on. Listen to the confidence in God's ability to protect and vindicate in verse 11. Um, but the Lord is with me like a mighty warrior. I love that. God is a mighty warrior, folks. I don't know if you know that. He says, so my persecutors will stumble and not prevail. They will fail and be thoroughly disgraced and their dishonor will never be forgotten. Just wait till God comes up and shows up on the scene. You guys are in trouble. By the way, that's exactly what happened. He was calling it out. Lord Almighty, you who examine the righteous and probe the hearts and the mind. In other words, God, he's talking about himself. You know what's going on inside of me. There's nothing hidden. Let me see your vengeance on them, for to you I have committed my cause. In other words, everything about my life is about you, and I'm doing everything you've asked me to do. You already know that, but look at what these characters are doing. And here at this point, Jeremiah returns to the promises of God during his calling. God had promised that there would be conflict, and that God would deliver a servant, and that they would not overpower him. See, it says here in verse chapter 1, verse 19, they were gonna, God says, they will fight against you but will not overcome you. For I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. So what is he doing now? He's standing on the promises of God. He's saying, God, this is what you told me and I know you're gonna do it. But where are you? <laughs> do you, you know what I'm saying? He goes, I know this is true, but hey, I got beat up the other day. Things aren't going very nice. I feel like you, you know, emotionally, I feel like you're a trillion miles from me. You told me this, but where are you? But he's got this confidence in God. So, in our lives as believers, during moments of anguish, we have to remind ourselves of what? God's promises. We gotta come back to the word of God. How many know we're in a spiritual battle? Anybody know that yet? Can I remind us? Paul's writing to the Ephesians. He says, finally, my brothers and sisters, I add that, it's, it's applying to all of us. Finally, be strong in the Lord. After all this other instruction about living life, oh, by the way, finally, this is important. You're fighting a spiritual battle. That's why this life is difficult. You're in a battle. He says, we know we're in a battle. He says, I want you to put on the whole armor of God. Now, I think a lot of people have some funky ideas about this, but let me tell you what I think it means, okay? Our adversary, though often manifesting himself through flesh and blood, because isn't that how the attacks come? Through people. And what do we want to do? Punch their lights out. But they, aren't the, they are not the problem. Can I just really mess with your heads for a minute? You know, a lot of us get really, you know, excited about, you know, these political leaders, and we have all of our opinions about these things, and we're all upset about these people. They're just flesh and blood. Flesh and blood, folks. That's not your problem. They're not your problem. Shock of all shocks. They're not it. What do you mean, pastor? Well, let's go to Paul's words. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes or devices or strategies. 
Satan has a strategy to take you out. He wants you to lose your cool. He wants you to lose the victory. He wants you to feel down. He wants you to feel despair. He wants you to know that, you know, as far as God is concerned, you're off the ledge. You know, he, he just wants you to feel like you're out of it. You've messed up. You're no good. You'll never be used again. Blah, 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 blah. All these accusations and lies flying at you daily. Who am I? Who am I to say this? Blah. You know what I mean? All the stuff going on in our heads, right? That's where the battle's being fought. Look at verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, the power of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's what we're coming against us. That's what's coming against us. How many go, that's nasty stuff. It's demonic. You know, sometimes people go, I can't believe what this person did. I go, yeah, you're right, that's demonic. Everything that's coming at you right now, you can, oh yeah, that's demonic. That's not flesh and blood. Well, it seems like it's flesh and blood. It's coming out of their mouth. Yeah, it's demonic though. Devil's using that against you. Look at verse 13. Therefore, put on the whole armor of God so that when the evil day comes, what do you think the day of anguish is all about? That hour of anguish, that Gethsemane experience, that dark night of the soul, that's an evil day, folks. You gotta have the armor of God on. So you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything to stand, he says, stand firm. Let's go back. I wanna go back to verse 13. After you have done everything to stand, what's the everything? What's he talking about? You have the armor of God on. That's what he's talking about. Put the whole armor of God on. You go, well, what does that really mean, pastor? Let's go back. The belt of truth. The breastplate of righteousness. He just keeps naming the armor of of the Roman soldier. But what is he really talking about? Is he talking about a Roman soldier's armor? No, he's using it as an illustration, a metaphor, an analogy. He's saying, no, you need to stay in the truth. You need to do the right thing. You need to be righteous. You need to do the right thing, okay? You need to be able to have your faith as a shield against every fiery dart and every lie that's coming against you. You need to have your head with the, hel- with the, with the helmet of salvation. It means I know who I am. I know I am a child of God. I know I am saved. I know I am justified. I know I am forgiven. I know who I belong to. I know who my identity is. I know I'm loved by God. I know God has a plan for me. I'm going to hang on to all of these things in my mind because the battle is being fought in your mind. And that's what we need to do. We need to continue to do what's right. We need to continue to believe the truth. We need to continue to live out the truth and not be seduced by the lies and the whispers and the gossips and all the nonsense that's going on around us and all the crazy stuff that people are talking about. One day somebody said, I don't know what to believe anymore, Pastor. I said, I do. It's this book called The Word of God. And if we would spend time in this book and believe what's in this book, you will be fine in this hour. You will not be deceived. You will not be sucked in. You will not be swayed. You will be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. And isn't that what we need in this hour? Absolutely. Paul reminds us in the book of Romans, if God is for us, 
Who can be against us? All the powers of hell can come against us. And I can just say, yeah, but I'm, I'm standing behind Jesus. Right? You remember the story of Elisha? A whole army came to arrest him. Remember that story? And his servant looked out the window and he saw the Syrian army surrounding him. And he said, oh my, what are we going to do? Elijah says, Lord, open his eyes. There are more for us than there are against us. And all of a sudden, his eyes were opened and he saw the heavenly host surrounding the army of Syria. They came, an army came to arrest one man and they couldn't do it. Because Elisha said, Lord, blind their eyes. They couldn't see. He said, we're looking for Elisha. I know where he is, he says, Elisha speaking. I'll lead you right to him. And he led him right over to the king of Israel where they were all captured and became prisoners. Isn't that a beautiful story? That's reality. You and I can take captive everything that's coming against us. Do you realize the kind of power that's living within us? It's beautiful. Then he goes on. Jeremiah simply reflecting the petition of the psalmist when he's praying these prayers. Uh, listen to what Psalm 35 says. Contend, Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Don't you love those? You know, I'm actually praying the psalm for somebody right now. I'm saying this person's having people contend against them. I'm saying, no, it's demons and demonic powers. Contend with them. You know, take up the shield and armor. Arise and come to that person's aid or my aid. May those who seek our lives be disgraced and put to shame. May they who plot our ruin be turned back in dismay. What a great prayer. Since they've hid their net from me without cause and without cause dug a pit for me. In other words, these people have laid a plan against me. Instead of panicking, oh, I'm in trouble now. They're all against me. What am I gonna do? May ruin overtake them by surprise. May the net they hit entangle them and may they fall into the pit to their ruin. In other words, God, I'm entrusting myself to you. Everything they've planned against me, may they fall into it themselves. That's quite a prayer. Wouldn't you say? You know, I remember one time some people wanted me to get fired where I was working. They had, they were, had this whole plan and they talked to the boss. They were trying to get rid of me. I didn't even know about the plot. Later on, I found out two people in our place of employment were no longer employed. So I said, well, what happened to these two people? And the guy that I was working with said, oh, they tried to get rid of you. Instead, they got fired. I said, oh, that's good news. How's that? Their, their plot backfired. You know, so often we get so uptight about stuff. Listen, if God be for you, my brothers and sisters, who can be against you? Nobody. Love this. Then he goes on to say this. I love this next, uh, yeah, let me go back here. Then my soul will rejoice in the Lord and delight in his salvation. Listen to what he says here. And uh, Paul, uh, that was in verse 13. Oh, no, sorry, that's the end of Psalm 35 here. But look at verse Jeremiah 13. Sing to the Lord, give praise to the Lord. He rescues the life of the needy from the hands of the wicked. This is Jeremiah. This is his confidence. And I think about this. Okay, we're in the middle of a, how many here could say, man, I'm in a difficult time, Pastor. I'm in an hour of anguish. I'm, I'm walking through all these problems. Well, join the club. Many people are there. But I want you to know Paul and Silas are preaching the gospel, and they're in all kinds of trouble. Everywhere they go preaching, how many know they stir things up? 
People get upset, there's hostility. But does that stop them from preaching? No way, because they know this is the only means by which people can be saved. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation. Everywhere he goes, he's preaching it. He's in Philippi, and he's preaching it, and he gets in trouble, and he gets slammed in jail, beaten up for preaching the gospel. And him and Silas are there shackled to the wall with chains on, and all of a sudden, we hear these, this voice. About midnight, Paul and Silas are praying, and they're singing hymns to God. They're praising God. They're rejoicing in God. And the other prisoners, what are they doing? They're listening in. I mean, how many know it's pretty rare when you have a fresh new set of prisoners just got beaten up and chained up? Usually when you get slammed into jail like that, everyone's walking around crying, bemoaning, complaining, all kinds of stuff. I'm innocent, I'm not guilty, blah, 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 blah. They're just praising God. Place starts shaking. Isn't that beautiful? Place starts shaking. All the jail cells pop open. Chains fall off. The jailer, who's now responsible, thinks the prisoners have escaped, realizes it's his life. He's about to commit suicide. And Paul says, don't hurt yourself. We're all here. He puts on a candle or whatever, runs into the cells and takes a look around, and he looks at these guys and he goes, what must I do to be saved? Isn't that an amazing thing? Don't you think Paul had been preaching to him? Of course he had been. And now he's hearing these guys sing, and now he sees the earthquake. He goes, there's a power here that's greater than anything I've ever known. What must I do to be saved? This is the guy that's pounded on them. He gets saved. His persecutor gets saved. How many think that's amazing? Paul didn't go, oh, I don't like you. You beat me up. You know, I got, I got, a, I, I got a grudge against you. No, he welcomes him into the kingdom of God. The man is so moved, he bathes Paul's wounds. He says, I'm so sorry, I didn't know what I was doing. Paul says, I know, you were living in darkness, but now you're in light. His whole family gets saved. They get baptized. This is amazing. How the dark night of Paul and Barnabas in jail become the, the means and the vehicle for God to reach a whole new family in Philippi. Love the story. It's great. What should we be doing in our dark night of the soul? I think we should be singing. We should be singing. You say, well, yeah, but I don't feel like a pastor. You see, that's what our problem is. We do what we feel like rather than what God's word tells us. You see, it says, I will praise the Lord when I feel like it. Oh, I didn't read, that's your translation. That's not my translation. No, at all times. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will always be in my mouth. Okay. You think, oh, what a way to end the sermon. Oh, this is so good. Jeremiah's finally got his head wrapped right, and he's right up here. He's rejoicing in the goodness of God. Whoops. He's going to slip now from that high elation into the depths of depression. He's going to slide down because we're coming to the third movement. It's the curses that he expresses regarding his life to God. Here we come to the most painful expressions of despair and reflection. I think often this is true of Jeremiah, it's true of us. It would seem that we have these mood swings, which all of us at one time or another have experienced, moving from despair to elation and then back down to despair. Anybody else besides you go up, down, up. Anybody else have that movement? Anybody else get on that roller coaster? Okay, some of us. I've noticed mine are not as high or low, just my own experience. Jeremiah is struggling with the task and response to his life in ministry, rejection, isolation, abandonment, and Jeremiah, like Job in that dark night of the soul, here's what he says. 
Cursed be the day I was born. May the day my mother bore me not be blessed. What is he saying? I wish I had never been born. I'm going to go, that's pretty dark. Right? I wish I had never found life. I am not a happy camper. That's what he's saying. Okay? Cursed be the man who brought my father the news who made him very glad, saying, a child is born to you, a son. That's bonus. You know, usually these guys that came and brought the news got rewarded. He's going... Boy, I wish that guy, I'm not happy with that messenger. As a matter of fact, he said, may that man be like the towns the Lord overthrew without pity. May he hear wailing in the morning and a battle cry at noon. What's he talking about? I was reading through this. I go, what's this about? Well, most scholars believe this is a reference to Sodom and Gomorrah. In other words, he says, I wish that guy had died. I wish he had never made it. I wish the news had never been announced that I was born. Jeremiah is not happy about being on the planet. How many see that? Are you getting a sense where he's coming from? He said, for he did not kill me in the womb with my mother as my grave, her womb enlarged forever. Oh my goodness. This, okay, another graphic scene. Stop. You know, he's basically saying some strong stuff here. He says, I wish you'd, if he's gonna say, if he's gonna do anything, I wish you'd come and kill me. This is not nice language. I mean, this is dark. How many say it's getting dark? You know, some people think the Bible is, you know, oh, it's, you know, it's rated G. Mm, I don't think so. There's a lot of stuff in this book that's not rated G at all. This is one of them. Jeremiah, like Job, they don't curse God. They don't curse their parents, but they certainly curse the day they were born. You can see that. They don't want to be around. Both the writer of Ecclesiastes and Job speak of never being born as being better than entering into some of the hardships that occur in our lives. Isn't that true? Sometimes we feel like, you know, man, this is so difficult. Why was I even born? I think, you know, Walter Brueggemann says something very significant. The bearer of the message is rejected by Jeremiah because he did not need to bring the news. He could have suppressed the news. Perhaps there's some subtle irony, he says. As Jeremiah himself is rejected as a messenger, so Jeremiah would reject the messenger who caused him to be present and known in the world. Jeremiah knows about messengers being rejected, and he wishes his birth message had never been delivered, just like he wishes he doesn't have to deliver the message God's given him. He's not in a good state of mind, is what I'm getting at here. The nature of the curse, we've already talked about that. Tremper Longman says, why is this man being cursed? Because instead of announcing with joy Jeremiah's birth, he should have performed an abortion. Wow, that's strong. You know, it would have been a mercy had he never been allowed to be born and suffer in the way that he's suffering. He wishes his mother's womb would have been his grave. Considering that Jeremiah acknowledged he was called to be a prophet in the womb, this statement also throws a note of sarcasm on his prophetic task. In other words, he says, you know, God says, I was from my mother's womb to be a prophet. He said, I wish I had died, never gotten out. I wish I didn't have this job. That's what he's telling us. I'm going to hear it. I wish this never happened to me. I mean, think this is pretty dark. It is, it's pretty dark stuff. I get it. Why did I ever come out of the womb to see trouble and sorrow and to end my days in shame? This is the last verse. And it raises a question that we must all face. His Walter Brueggemann says his urgent inquiry is more than simply the why of human existence. Why am I here? It's the why of being given a burden of plucking up and tearing down, a message completely and predictably resisted. 
The issue is not existence, but vocation that shapes existence. So what is he saying? He's basically saying, um, well, that God has a purpose. Why did God create me? Isn't that a question we should all be asking ourselves? Why did God create me? And here's where we must experience the greatest paradigm shift from where we are, where, we, where, we, where uh, I, I believe that we're struggling from what we hear continuously in our culture. The word here should be H-E-A-R, where we hear continuously in our culture. We are created to fulfill God's will and serve his purpose. You know, I think we've got to grasp a, a biblical concept I think we've kind of missed it. I'll tell you what it is. You and I are not here for us. You were created not so that you could discover yourself and find out what you were all about and enjoy life and have pleasure and live a meaningful, significant life. That's what our culture tells us our purpose is. I want to shatter that today. That's not why you're here. You maybe have always wondered, why am I here? I'm going to tell you why you're here. I want you to go back to this statement that Paul writes to the Colossians about the creation of the world and who's the creator, and that's Christ himself. And he says in Colossians, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him, Christ, all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible, which is us, and invisible, whether thrones or powers or authorities, all things have been created through him, through Christ, and for Christ. You and I were created for Christ. And Revelation says we were created for his pleasure. So God, when he created you, had something in mind. Do you understand this? That God designed you in such a way with a purpose in mind. And once you and I become a believer, that God has even prepared things for us to do in advance. Good works that we need to do in advance. God's prepared those things for us. That's amazing. So this isn't all by accident. This is all by divine design. God created you. So the question I need to ask and what the question every believer in Christ should be asking is simply this. What is God's purpose for me? That's what I need to understand. My life is not my own. I belong to him. And what happens when I find what he's asked me to do is now challenging and difficult and at times painful. Yet I need to understand that what God has called us to do is good and right and necessary. And I want you to think about certain moments. You see, a lot of times we look at our lives and we go, I don't see any meaning when I feel undervalued when I'm taking care of my children. I feel underappreciated or unappreciated. But God called you to that. Are we following what I'm saying? This is a calling. And it happens. You know, when your children rise up and are in rebellion and you feel like, man, I poured out my life for you guys and then you're telling me that I've done nothing for you. You see what's happening here? But God called you to it. That's a difficult moment. Or maybe, you know, you've been toiling at a job and it seems exhausting and the pay isn't what it should be and the bills are mounting up and you're supporting a family and you just feel like this is endless. There's never an end to this. I feel like I'm on a merry-go-round. I can't get off. And maybe you feel undervalued where you're working or underappreciated and the challenges you're currently facing seem beyond you. And the temptation is to run away, quit, give up, and flee. And I think we live in such a day of much irresponsibility, negligence, and indolence or laziness. 
We rarely today speak of loyalty, duty, and responsibility. Those words are just about gone. As a matter of fact, I don't think I've heard the word duty in so long. I think the word is, I don't even know if it's still in the dictionary. Because I haven't heard that word in a long time. But there was a generation before my generation, they said, listen, I have a duty to do. This is my responsibility. And even though it's difficult, I'm going to do it. Are we hearing this, folks? Because, you know, I think it's interesting that we've had sometimes young men have gone out. I'm just thinking about World War II for a minute. Those young men that went to the beaches in Normandy, 18 and 19 years old. Some of them, they went because they, they, they felt like that was their, their duty to their country, and they went. Others were conscripted. They were brought there. And they didn't have a choice. And can you imagine charging those beaches with bullets flying, people dying? It was their duty. It was their responsibility. We live in a very sorried condition as a culture. I'm serious about this. I think we need a renewal inside of our soul. We need God to encourage us right now to say, listen, you know, I, I know that some of you here today, you're facing opposition, difficulty, persecution, maybe feelings of abandonment. <clears throat> well, the question is, uh, and I like what C.S. Lewis said, the great thing in life is to be found at one's post as a child of God, living each day as though it were our last, but planning as though our world might last 100 years. In other words, am I faithful? So what are the challenges that are discouraging us, and how will we respond to those challenges? It's so critical. Is that not true? I think it's okay to tell God how you feel. I think it's okay to be angry with God. I think it's okay to be disappointed. I think it's okay to say, God, I feel stuck and I can't get out. You know what I mean? Where are you? I think it's okay to tell them all that stuff. But in the end, I think one of the things that we need to learn to do is surrender our rights to have a life. That's a challenging statement. And to lay down our rights for his namesake and say, God, what is it you want me to do? And then to be faithful to do his will. Because I'm gonna make a statement in the end not in the hour of darkness, but in the end, you will look back and say, thank God, I did what God asked me to do. You'll never look back with regret if you do God's will. I can tell you that right now. You will get through this hour. You will get through the discouragement. You will get through the darkness. But running away is never the answer. Quitting is never the answer. Giving up is never the answer. Jesus said, men and women are always to pray and not to give up. We need to go to God. We need to God to do a work inside of us so that we are faithful to do what he designed and created each one of us to do. Let's stand. I know this is a little challenging, but you know, sometimes when we go through these times, we think, well, people are going to tell me just, you know, uh, say something that will help us. I think this will help us. I say, if you're in that hour, go to God. Tell them what you think how you feel. How many say Jeremiah was pretty intense? Did anybody think he's intense? Did he, did he use graphic language? Was he mad at God? Was he angry? Was he disappointed? I'd, I'd check all those boxes off as yes. But I think he's also teaching us something. Prayer, praise, and coming to that realization. I'm doing what God has asked me to do. And there's no greater thing than to do that. Amen? No matter how challenging. 
Because if you just live for yourself, it's a small world. But if you live to fulfill God's will for your life, you've just expanded your world big time. Big time. With every head bowed right now, I want to pray for us. Maybe you're walking through that season in your life right now. I want to pray for you. This is not an easy time, and I don't want to make light of it. I don't think it's an easy time. I think we will all have those experiences and moments in our life. Maybe you're there. Just raise your hand. I want to pray with you today. Okay. Anybody else? Okay. Yes, some of you. Thank you for your authenticity and your vulnerability. I want to believe God's going to do a work in your life. He's going to take you through the season. How many here say, you know, Pastor, I feel challenged this morning because I prayed two things would happen. One, you would be comforted, and two, you'd be challenged to say, you know what, I want to give my life to fulfilling the design that God created me to fulfill. That's you this morning. Raise your hand. See, I got my hand up. I want to do God's will. It's all that matters to me now, doing his will. So, Lord, I pray today that you would move supernaturally. I pray for those that are downhearted, discouraged, despairing, in anguish, frustrated. Maybe they're angry or disappointed. I pray right now that grace would flood their soul. I pray, Lord, that they would realize they're in a spiritual battle. And, Lord, that you are with us. You don't leave us. You don't abandon us. And I pray, Lord, as a, as a community of faith, we want to rally around them, Father, with our shields of faith right now, even as the Roman legions would form a shield of faith around each other. Lord, we bring our shields around them today, Father. We pray that the fiery darts of the enemy would deflect off. I pray that hope would arise within their hearts, Father. I pray this morning for those, Lord, who are recognizing that there is a distinctive call of God on their life. Lord, may they embrace it, even though it may be challenging. There'll be moments our soul will want to shrink back, but I pray, Lord, we'll press on. We'll press through, Father. We'll get to that place where we surrender to you to do your will. And I pray in that joy will come in the morning. Though there's been weeping for the night, joy will come in the morning. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.